We're in James chapter 1, beginning this morning in verse 18. That's page 1011 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. This is the word of the Lord. As we introduced last week, we're going to walk through the book of James over the next weeks during the summer months, and then, Lord willing, in the fall, we'll turn to Romans. But for now, it's James, and we're going to go through James in a bit different fashion than we have gone through other books to some degree. Part of the difference is the first couple of weeks, last week and this week, are introductory kind of sermons on the whole overview of the book of James, because I'm convinced it's it's significant in every book to get an overview of everything that's said in the book first before you dive into it, but particularly of James. To get an overview is important, to get a kind of an aerial shot of the whole book, and then we'll go and begin to move through the book uh, from chapter 1 through the end. Last week, if you remember, we said several things about why James, why this book I just want to reiterate a few of those quickly, and then we're going to move on to another kind of aerial look at the book of James here this morning before we launch out into it, um, beginning at the beginning of James. Last week, we said several things of why. Why now? Why the book of James? Why we picked it? One was that it was the earliest book in the canon. Of all of the New Testament writings, it appears that James was the earliest one or one of the earliest ones. And so I think that has significance to us. It's also significant that it was written, most believe, by James, the brother of Jesus. There's lots of things to think about in that, and, and uh, we didn't talk about this last week, but one of the things is imagine, imagine just yourself. If, if you were Jesus, and you're not, you know that, I don't have to tell you that, but imagine growing up as Jesus and, and, uh, and being the brother of Jesus, James, he certainly had to see things in Jesus that puzzled him. But at one point early on in Jesus' ministry, it says his brothers didn't believe in him. But then G- Jesus goes on to talk about being God. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. And one of the things that certainly James knew about God was that God was holy. And so as Jesus begins to talk about being God, we don't know exactly when James was converted, but you can imagine what's going on in his mind. Jesus claims to be God. He's my brother. And what I know about God is he's perfectly holy. And Jesus claims to be God. And so you extrapolate that out is Jesus has to be holy to give any credibility to his claim God. And in fact, must have done that because James became a believer. And he doesn't say James, the brother of Jesus. He says James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. James 
watched Jesus grow up. And had Jesus claimed to be God and not been God, or not been incredibly different than anybody James had ever experienced in his life, just imagine, would James have become a follower of Jesus? That's one of the the credences and the credibilities to Jesus' claims is his own brother who he lived with. And you know what it's like of those who live with you. They know you're not perfect. They know it well. Uh, They know it very well. My wife knows very well my faults, my shortcomings. And your spouse does as well. Just imagine, put yourself there, think about that for a moment. Jesus claimed to be God. Would James have embraced him? if he wasn't absolutely sure he was. That's just a sidelight, really. But why James? That's, that's another reason why. But the pastoral tone of it, it's a picture of, of holiness. But at the end of last week, I said one of the key reasons for the book of James now, one, a couple of the key reasons, is one is what I think is going to happen and is beginning to happen. I think there's going to be a rising pressure upon the Western church um, from outside. I think, I think things, except something dramatically changes, I think it is going to, to not, to become less and less beneficial to be a Christian. We said this a few weeks ago that for a long time to be a Christian in the West or to claim to be a Christian, even if you weren't, had benefits. No longer is that the case, I, I think. It is no longer beneficial. In fact, many people who are Christians in the workplace, in many places, don't tell people they are because they know what might come to them. It's not beneficial. It used to be good to have it on a resume in our culture, but that is fast changing. And with that, I think lots of other things are going to change. Not, not that we should wring our hands about that. In fact, I think we should see that as opportunity. I think some of the greatest opportunities for the gospel to go forward, may come in that kind of a pressure cooker environment in the West. Now, we don't, we don't long for those times to come, but if they do come, I pray that we don't just wring our hands, that we don't say, oh God, what is happening? But rather, we do what James said, is count it all joy, my brothers, when various trials come into your life. Which I think the setting of the book of James... where it was written, was written in that kind of a setting that we're fast entering into, I think, in the West here. And and then finally, that in all of that, that that we would be a sweet-smelling aroma to the world, that the church would be an aroma of life to the world around us. They would see something different within the church, within God's people. And so that's why James, part of why James. Now today... Today, the question we want to ask is not why James, but where is the gospel found in James? Where is the gospel message found in the book of James? Because James is different than other books of the Bible. In fact, of the 108 or so verses in the book of James, 59 of those verses are imperatives. Do this. Imperatives. That kind of a statement. So where do we find the gospel in that? One of the things that we believe strongly here at Richland is that we want to be gospel-centric. My Sunday school classes are geared around that, what it means to have the gospel for all of life. We say often here at Richland that the gospel is for believers. 
Now, certainly it's for unbelievers. It's, it's the power of God to salvation, to coming to life in Christ. But I think it is also the power of God to sustain that work that God has begun. It's his means to sustain life in his people to the end. And he who begins that work does take it to the end. But he does it, I think, through the means of the gospel. So to, to, today and these next weeks as we open the book of James, if, if we open up a book and it's devoid of gospel, that doesn't fit what we really believe, that it's the gospel that sustains us, even sustains us to do the imperatives that Scripture at times calls us to do. And so I don't want us just to read the book of James with a bunch more things to do that we go out and attempt to do them in the flesh. If the gospel's not present there, if James didn't appreciate that gospel, I think we're in trouble. But, in fact, I think he did, and I think the gospel is there. And last week, if you remember, one of the things I encouraged you to do was read it through several times. Just take the book of James and read it through. Set aside your own, maybe, Bible reading that you plan you have, and just read James. I hope some of you did that. If you didn't, I hope you'll do it this week, and I hope you'll do it through the summer. You'll just read the entirety of the book of James And then I told you to specifically look in two places where I think we find the gospel in the book of James, particularly. One of those is in chapter 1, the text that we just read, verses 18 through 21. In fact, we're going to go back to that text this morning and unpack it. That's what I mean by we're going to treat this book a bit differently. I'm I'm jumping in the middle of James to begin the series and In some senses, we'll come back to that text later and unpack more of it. But I'm jumping to that text this morning because I want you to see in that text, in the midst of 108 verses and 59 imperatives, that the gospel is at the heart of that and at the core of that. And you must see the gospel to fulfill even what James asks us to do in that text. And then the other place that I said you find the gospel is in chapter 4 and verse 6 where it says, but he gives more grace. And in those two texts this morning is where I want us to find ourselves here. Now, just a bit again of context of the entire book, and that is to, to keep in mind that this book, this particular book was written to believers. It was written to believers who James already assumed knew much about the Christian life. He didn't give it all to them. Even the gospel, he didn't give it all to them. He has, there were some assumptions, I think, on James's part. They already knew some of those things. Why do we believe it's believers that he wrote to? It's because in verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers. He was writing. His intention was to write to professing believers, people who had embraced Christ. And uh, Paul or, or James was writing to them. But he writes some interesting things to them. And, and as you looked, I hope, and read through the book of James, your eyes would have come to verses 14 through 18 of chapter 2. And I hope, being under the ministry here for a period of time, that a text like that would have, would have caught you. Listen to what it says. Let's read it together, beginning at verse 14 of chapter 2. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. 
So can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I hope a text like that, in light of all that we have been walking through over the last weeks and months and years and talking about the gospel being centric and talking about what the gospel is and what it accomplishes and talking about the finished work of Christ and the fact that Jesus went to the right hand of the Father and sat down because the work was finished. What does he mean here when he says things like, can that faith save him? A faith that does not have works. And questions, I hope, rise up in your mind. What is this works thing in regards to faith? And that you wrestle with that a bit. That you wrestle with texts like that. You don't just run over the top of them. Paul said some very strong things in the book of Galatians. He said, if someone comes to you and preaches any other gospel than the one that I preach to you, let him be accursed. In other words, Paul said, let him be damned. Let him be sent to hell. That's what he meant. That's the strong language he used. It's so important that that we do not distort the gospel. And as we read James, we, we need to ask, does he distort the gospel? with all of these imperatives, and it seems very little gospel in his book. And even when he talks about faith, he he mixes it up with works. What does that mean? How does that fit? I hope we wrestle with those kinds of questions. I hope that we take time to think those things through. And that's why I wanted you to read the book. That's why I wanted you to read it all, so that you get all of that as we begin to look at it. Now, let me say some things. We'll say more about these things as we go along, as we look at individual texts, and we walk through the, the, the verses of, of these chapters. We'll say more. But let me say some things that are fundamental, I think, to put underneath you as we dive into the book of James. One st- thing that I would say to you is this about works. Works are not the grounds or the basis of our justification, but rather the fruit of it. Works are a part of the Christian life, but they are not the grounds of our justification. They are rather the fruit of our justification. That's significant. Uh, Another person says this. It says, it's not the quantity of our works, but the reality of them. That is evidence of faith. That's a key thing. In other words, when the Bible talks about works, it's not talking about the idea that there needs to be a certain quantity. In other words, if you reach that quotient, then somehow you're in the kingdom. And if you fall short of that quotient, you are not. It's not the quantity, but the reality. I think there is teaching in the gospel, that that works will flow out of faith and out of our justification, but not as the grounds, not as the basis of our justification, but as the fruit. And not about adding up the quantity, but the, 
but the fact that there is a reality, that there's a reality of them in us. Not quantity, but reality. That's what I think James is talking about here. That's what he's talking about in his book, and we'll flesh that out. Because he says in verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Look at what it says. Can that faith save him? Can that faith, which I don't think is true saving faith. In other words, a person who says, I have faith, but there's no fruit of work coming out of it. Something is wrong. It's, it's not true saving faith, I think, is what one would say about that. Part or inherent within the gift of faith, then, and we'll talk more about these in the coming days, but part and inherent within the gift of faith, and you believe faith is a gift from God, don't you? That's what it says in the book of Ephesians. It's a gift from God. Inherent within that faith are works. In what God plants in our heart, faith, inherent within that are good works that flow out of that. The Bible says it another way when it says we are created in Christ Jesus, created for good works to be the fruit. So when James is talking about that faith, he's talking about a faith that is not true saving faith. That faith can't save you. It's not the faith that the Bible talks about when it says the just shall live by faith. Another person put it this way when they said the Christian life, the Christian life is acting the miracle. Works are acting the miracle. What is the miracle? The miracle of new birth. What the Christian life is and how works affect it and apply to it is that it's acting out the miracle of the new birth. That's what works are. It's the outflow, the fruit of the new birth. Now, look at the text that we had this morning. I want to jump into that. I want to look at that because I think in here, in these verses, in in chapter 1, beginning at verse 18 through 21, we find the gospel. Listen to what it says, beginning at verse 18. It says, of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the first fruits of his creatures. That is speech, I think, that talks about the gospel. When it says the word word of truth, I'll show you in just a minute, in other places, when that particular terminology is used, it, it, reply, it, it refers to the gospel. But before that, look what it says. It says, by his will, by God's will, he brought us forth. He, he birthed us. We were born again. We were brought forth from death by the word of truth. That's what it says and what he's telling these brothers, these who have had that happen to them. He's reminding them of what happened. They were brought to life when they were dead spiritually. The word brought them forth. The word of truth, the gospel brought them to life. Now, look at a couple of places, or just at least listen with me. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 5, this terminology where it says, word of truth. Why do I say this has the gospel or this is the gospel? It doesn't use that word. 
But listen to what it says in other places. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth. Same terminology. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes again, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So the, the terminology, word of truth, though it doesn't say gospel, is the gospel. The word of truth that God brought forth to life these brothers was the gospel. It was the gospel that brought them to life. As they trusted in Christ, um, they were brought to life in Christ there. First Peter would say it this way. He says, you have been born again, not of imperishable, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, it says here, or word of truth. You have been brought to life. You have been born again. And so the terminology here, what he's saying here is, you have been brought to life by the will of God. He's brought you to life by the word of truth, by the gospel. Therefore, he goes on in the book of James to tell them what the fruit of that is. If you truly have had that faith planted in your heart by the word of truth, then fruit will be works that will flow out of that particular experience. So works are the fruit of the implanted and abiding word of God. Let's read on in this text a minute because he begins to change the terminology. It says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What are they to to respond to in meekness? The implanted word, the, the word that was implanted in their heart and brought them to life in Christ. They're to respond with meekness. And, and what is the implanted word is, is what he begins to talk about here in, in the book of James. But it was implanted in their heart. They were brought to life, a, a heart that didn't want it. God, by his own will, brought them to life through that word. Listen to me. One of the best ways to understand this contrast of what they were compared to somebody who, who maybe hears the word, but it doesn't bring life. It doesn't cause them to be brought forth. Is in the book of John. You might want to turn there. We want to, we're going to read a portion of that. But in the book of John, chapter 8, Jesus has an encounter with the religious leaders. And we see the contrast. Maybe the best way to see what this means is by seeing what it doesn't mean and what doesn't happen in some when that word goes forth. In John chapter 8, beginning at verse 31, we're going to read about eight verses of this. Listen to the story. It says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, 
If you abide in my word and you you truly are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in me. They were talking about and relying on being of the house of Abraham, of the lineage of Abraham. And, and, uh, Jesus acknowledges that part. I know you're of the offspring of Abraham, but, but he goes on to say, but you're really not of Abraham in the way you need to be of Abraham. And that's what he begins to talk about. And the reason is because my word finds no place in you. Now that's a contrast to the people in the book of James. In the book of James, that word did find a place in them, and it brought forth life in them, but not so here. It says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not know what you've heard from your father. And then they go on. They, they begin to push back at him. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works that your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have the one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot Bear to hear my word. You are of the father the devil, and you and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Where he lies, he speaks out his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, Why do you not believe me? And then he says this, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You see the contrast? In James, those people heard the word of God in the sense that it brought them to life. It wasn't that these people didn't hear it physically, but they didn't hear it in the way that they needed to hear it. They didn't hear it in the way that it brings forth life for them. They knew the word well. Don't don't stop and think for a moment that these people didn't know the word well. But the difference is the word found no place in them. It was not implanted within them. They felt no need of it. You see, the difference between the group that James writes to and this group is that they heard the word, but the word did not get implanted within them. They didn't receive the word. It wasn't planted in their hearts and and bring forth life. And so James is going back to the people and he's talking about the implanted word and the fact that the implanted word 
brings life. And part of that life will manifest itself in good works. Listen again in the book of Thessalonians. This is a contrast now between the people we just read about in John and what it's really like to let the word be implanted. In Thessalonians, Paul writes this, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Which is at work in you believers. The word goes into the heart of one who is brought to life, and it goes to work. It starts to work in them. It's implanted in them to begin to change them and to allow the fruit of good works to flow out of that implanted word. And so as we read the book of James, we must see what we're reading and what we're being admonished to do. It's the fruit of that implanted word. It's the fruit that we've come to life. If you try to live the book of James without the word being implanted within you, it will accomplish nothing. It It will bear no fruit, ultimately. We always need to read the book of James with the gospel at the center of it, that God brought the word of truth, that word of truth brought forth life, and that word was implanted in the heart. And so what we do and what we hear in the book of James is a response of that life, is a response of letting God work in us by his word and by his truth. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 14 says this, I write to you because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. The word of God abides in you. The word of God abided in the people that James was writing to. He would not have written what he wrote. He would not have given those imperatives there except he was confident of that. James was not coming against the gospel. But in fact, he was giving us the gospel in his book. And the fruit that flows out of the gospel, the implanted word, the fruit of the implanted word. So, how do we respond to that? How do we come to the book of James with that in mind? How should we respond? How should it affect us in our lives? One person writes it this way. He says, receiving the external word replenishes the power of the implanted word. And the implanted word creates hunger to receive the external word. So the implanted word within us causes us to receive this external word, to be alive to this external word. So as we come to the book of James, what my hope is, is as we read it and it talks about what it ought to look like to have true faith. He would say, though sometimes we don't like the word in our culture today, true religion, authenticity in our faith. He begins to tell us and show us a picture of what that's like. Always admonishing us to go back to the gospel. Always go back to the life within us. I think that's part of what it means in chapter 4 and verse 6, where it says, he gives more grace. What God gives us when when the 
power of the external word connects with the power of the implanted word, the life within us. God extends grace to us and strength to us to live out that word by his strength and by his power and by his help. And that's what I hope will happen over the next weeks, that God will work in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure, that we, in fact, will learn more of what it is to be created in Christ Jesus to do good works, and that God will cause us to look at our hearts, and we will look at our hearts in, in relation to James, in some of the areas where he just comes pretty, pretty close in some of the things he talks about and attitudes of the heart and ways we ought to, to act and react as Christians. I believe as God lets this external word connect with the implanted word, that it will dramatically change us. It changes us. It conforms us more and more to the image of Christ. And so that's the journey we set out in. I've asked the worship team to come this morning. And we're going to close this morning with one of the songs that we sang. The song that says, Lord, I need you. We do need him. We need him to come and to give us more grace. And as we launch out into the book of James, that God would use his word to, uh, to change us, to take the power of the written word by the power of the implanted word and do his work. May God help us. Let's stand as the worship team leads us this morning. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My righteousness, oh God, how I need you. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found, is where you are. And where you Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. Where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me.
concentrated places where we have the words of Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, but you don't read the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you can miss it. Just like in James, if you read the things he talks about doing as the fruit of faith, without getting the gospel, you can miss it. In in the Sermon on the Mount, what it is, is blessed are the poor in spirit. He starts there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know their need of God and the fact that he will supply the grace to do it. And then he launches out into the Sermon on the Mount, which can really cut us, can it? And call us up short. Things in the Sermon on the Mount that we talked about a few weeks ago, like if you were angry with your spouse or your child or your coworker last week, you were guilty of murder. Don't take that lightly. Jesus meant that. He meant that. We don't see it that way, do we? But you see, that's the way James is. He cuts cuts like that. But you need to know that it needs to flow out of the power of the implanted word, of his word in us and the spirit in us, just as it had to flow out of being poor in the spirit in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us, Lord, to live this Christian life at the heart level. It's easy to paint something on the outside, but what the Sermon on the Mount is and what James is, is living it at the heart level. And Lord, we're going to come up short. We're going to come up short. And oh God, we need you. We need to know that our righteousness is in Christ We need to know that we've been brought to life and that even though we fall short, it doesn't exclude us from the kingdom. But Lord, the very fact we realize it, we begin to just say, Lord, help me, help me. 
Change me, work in me to will and to do. Lord, we just pray that as we approach James, we would approach it that way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.